Good morning. That was pretty good. Welcome. Normally, I would be following these kids to the back. I spend most of my time back there, but it's pretty awesome. I get to hang out with all the big kids today, so I'm glad you're here. I got to tell you, I have taught Sunday school for a long time, a long time, and I've forgotten to teach in any other way. So, if I roll on the ground, or if I pull worms out of my pocket, or if I tell you about grasshoppers named Gus, just, just go with it, please. My shameless plug for, uh, for children's ministry, our kids need you. We've got 30 kids who come back there every Sunday, and they've got hearts that are just open. They are ready, but they, they need you. If you are willing to, to make a, a small commitment to invest in their lives, come and talk to me. It doesn't take a lot of preparation. I will show you everything you need to know, which isn't all that much. If you're interested, come on back. Talk to me. I'd, I'd, love, to, uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. I was five, and I thought life was pretty good. But then, uh, but then Dad comes up, and he says, Rob, here's the deal. We're going to take the training wheels off your bike. I said, what? He said, yes, we're going to take the training wheels off your bike. And I thought, that's a silly idea. <laughs> Why take off something that is so awesome? You, you don't take off training wheels. I can do all kinds of awesome things with training wheels. You, you don't do that. But here's the funny part. My dad was a planner. And so he, uh, he warned me a week ahead of time that we were going to do it. And so it created all kinds of anxiety, and it gave me something to think about when I was trying to fall asleep in the middle of the night. We're going to take the training wheels off. So the day comes, and he walks me out to the garage, and I still hadn't come up with a really good idea on why we shouldn't take the training wheels off my bike. And, and then inspiration struck. I remember he's grabbing the wrenches, and, and I said, Dad, Dad, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm five. I don't want to die. And I don't know if it was because Dad had three other kids and I was re replaceable, or, or he didn't hear me, but he didn't seem to mind because he did it anyway. He took them off my bike, and then he took me to the top of our hill because anything worth doing in my dad's mind was worth doing the hard way. He puts me... <laughs> he takes me to the top of our hill... And he's telling me all the time, everything's going to be okay, Robbie. You're going to be fine. See, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to the back seat. And you're going to pedal and I'm going to run along with you, which was his first lie because dad never runs. And so he says, I'm going to hold on to the seat and I'll run along with you. He says, you're going to pedal and before you know it, you're going to be at the, the bottom of the hill. Well, he finished it off and I knew I was in trouble. He said, it's going to be fine. And I said, Dad's a liar. <laughs> because absolutely nothing was going to be fine. I remember looking up to him, and for the first time in my life, I wondered, are you good? I, I mean, I know you're my daddy, and I know, I, know I love you, but, but are you good? 
This is a silly idea. You don't take the training wheels off the bike. And then he picked me up and he puts me on the bike. And I don't know what happened next. But I do know the net result. The net result was I ended up 10 feet down the road with a bike on top of me. And it was not fine. But I was afraid to cry. Because then I was afraid he'd give me something to really cry about. So daddy lifts the, bike, lifts the bike off me, and he picks me up, and I'm going, oh, it's hug time. So he picks me up, picks up the bike, picks me up, it's hug time, and he puts me right back on the bike. And any question I had about the goodness of my dad simply evaporated in, in that moment. He was not good. So there I was. I was balancing on my bike and dad was holding on to the seat. And he says, now when I tell you, he says, you pedal. And I tipped over. I didn't pedal. He just let go and I tipped over. You are not good. You are not helping. This is not fine. So I did the only thing I could do in that moment. I kicked my bike. I laid down there and I kicked my bike. Dad looked at me, asked me if I was done. I said, yeah, I reckon. And then he picked me back up. And he puts me back on the bike. It wasn't going to end. And so I figured out he's not going to give up. He doesn't care if I'm bleeding on him or not. So I just better figure this thing out. Riding back on the bike, he's holding on to it. I said, okay, I got this. So I start to pedal. And then I really start to pedal. And then I said, hey, Dad, pretty cool. And Dad! And before I knew it, I was at the bottom of our hill, right by my friend's house, and I was looking back up up at him, and, and there was Dad, and he was smiling. And I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, that afternoon I did something. I questioned the goodness of my dad. I questioned the the character of my dad, and it caused me to ignore my dad. Because if if he couldn't be trusted, then I was on my own. And I was going to have to teach myself how to ride my bike. What I missed was the fact that he was good in the past. He showed me he was good in the past. What made me think that just because the training wheels came off my bike that that he wasn't going to be good anymore? Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen God's blessing and known God's blessing and, and he's done great and wonderful things and he does it over and over and over again? But then the training wheels come off. Things get hard. Life gets complicated. Your job, you may lose it. Your health, it it may fade. The relationships that you counted on, they go south. The training wheels come off and it's hard. And in that moment, it's easy for us to question the goodness of God. We question His character. We 
question his love. What we forget is he was faithful in the past. He's going to be faithful in those, those present circumstances, which means he's going to be faithful in the future because his heart is good. And you can trust that heart. Regardless of what life looks like. Regardless of what the diagnosis is. Regardless of what else is happening. Let's pray. Father God, you were indeed good. And each of us stands before you, counting on that goodness. Father, this morning we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have us hear and see and understand. Father, we ask that you would be transformed, that we might grow closer to you, that we might love you more. Father, we love you and we commit this time to you in your precious and holy name. Amen. We're continuing this week in the questions that we have. A few years ago, a company called Barna Group, they're, uh, they're kind of a research company, a think tank, and they did a study. They asked a thousand people, if you could ask God any question you want and he was going to answer you, what would you ask? Well, the number one question was, why does God allow suffering? Pretty good question. Here's the funny part. More married couples than singles asked it. And I don't know what the connection is. But, <laughs> but it's a good question. Why does a good God, a loving God, allow suffering? If he's so good and, and he's so powerful, why not just create the perfect world? Where there's no sickness and, and no disease and chocolate doesn't make you be fat. Why not create that world? Because that's an awesome world. Genesis 1.31 says this. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But that was back when the world was new. Probably had the, the tag still on it. Probably had that new world smell to it. There was no pain. There was no disease. God, God said that it was very good. And he probably has some pretty good, pretty high standards. And then he put a man there, gave her a pretty little wife, said, everything you need, I, I'm going to provide for you. Everything that, that you could want is going to come from my hand. But God needed something from them. He wanted just one thing from them. He said, I'll give you everything you want. I will bless you. I will give you animals. I'll do whatever you want. You eat it. You love it. It's good. He said, but I just want one thing from you. He said, I want your heart. He said, I want your will. He, he asked them for one thing, a heart that chose to follow their creator, to walk in obedience. He gave them a choice. He could have given them a heart that would have automatically followed. But what he was desired was something more than that. He desired that they would choose him. And it's the same choice he asks us to make. Day in and, and day out, he says, choose me. Because love with no choice, it, it, well, it isn't love at all. So he tells them, eat what you want. Do what you want, but don't do one thing. 
don't eat from this tree. It's the only thing you got to do. I wish we only had that one rule in our house. It's pretty simple stuff. But we know that the story ends with a fruit salad, a broken world, and two people running around naked trying to hide from God. But about that time, God shows up. And this was their conversation. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the, called to the man. He said, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, well, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God turned to the woman and said, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. What they were saying was something like this. If you hadn't given me the woman, I wouldn't have eaten it. And the woman said, if you hadn't created the serpent, he couldn't have tricked me. So God only gives them one rule they break it, and then they blame him for the reason they couldn't keep the one, one rule, and then they ran away naked. My little brother used to do the same thing, but that's... <laughs> you go break the rules, take off his clothes, run down the street, it was twisted. <laughs> but that's what sin does. Sin at its core, that's what it does. It, it twists, it conspires, it breaks what is holy and what is good. And then it runs away and hides from the one person who can fix the problem they just messed up. Genesis three fourteen and 15 said, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He was telling them there was going to be war. He was saying that from that moment on there was a battle and the battle was going to take place on the very ground that they stood that was holy that they broke and it was never coming back. And it was the result of their sin. Genesis three sixteen through 19. says to the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you are re going to return. He was telling them from that world on, from that moment on, that in the world they were going to have trouble. Paradise was shattered. It was broken. 
life was going to change. They chose deliberately to walk away from him. They chose to listen to another voice, and it incited rebellion. Baby, the honeymoon was over. What was new and what was perfect and what was holy had become corrupt. And that perfect, perfect world was immediately dissected by two kinds of evil. The first was a moral evil. It's our sin. It's the stuff that we, we do that, that takes us away from our God. It's, it's what we think. It's what we lust for. It's the decisions those sins cause us to make. It's our selfish desire that causes us to hate and to kill our brother. The moral evil was the enmity that had been birthed from their desire to become equal with God. It was a virus that became part of the human condition that affected every man but one ever since. Their corruption, our corruption, began with a simple conversation. It was turning to listen to another voice and allowing it to incite rebellion against our God. It was knowing what God required and doing just the opposite. The effects of that choice are pervasive. The moral decay that exists in our world is like none other. You see it. We have a holy God that seeks after us while we pursue other things and then we hide. The world cloaks everything that is broken in their life with the fact that they're trying to run away from a holy God and then they say there can't be a God because he lets such horrible things happen. The second evil that was created in that moment was a natural evil. That was where the very ground turned against man. Things that the man couldn't control, things that he couldn't affect, became infected. Cancer, natural disasters, earthquakes, fire, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, things that they weren't interacting with. God tells Adam this in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate the fruit from about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. As one author explained it, when we humans told God to shove off, he partially honored our request and nature began to revolt. The earth was cursed. Genetic breakdown and disease began. Pain and suffering became a part of the human condition. Sin corrupted creation. Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole of creation has been groaning, is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, nature longs for redemption to come. It longs for redemption to come. And one day it will. Things will be set right one day. But it's that corruption that was the source of disorder and chaos. God doesn't inflict suffering. God has no part of evil. It's simply the natural consequence of rebellion. 
But why didn't God just adjust the plan a little bit? Why, why didn't he just put the, the tree somewhere else? Tell him not to eat lima beans because nobody do that. Why didn't God... Why didn't God stop the evil before the evil began? Or at least limit the potential that the evil would have so all of creation wouldn't have to be destroyed. Why give them a choice when the stakes were so high and all of creation were hanging in the balance? Give them a choice. Absolutely. Give them free will. Do it. But don't let it affect all of creation for all of time. Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do that? Because if he would have stopped sin, he would have had to stop. He would have had to stop all sin. So the killer would have to be stopped along with the liar, which means the liar would have to be stopped along with the guy that hated his brother, which would mean that not doing anything God tells you to do, well, you'd have to stop that too. You can't stop the one without stopping it all. You can't stop it all without eliminating free will, without giving man the ability to choose. You can't stop the one without stopping it all. Which means you wouldn't have the ability to offer your love to him freely, eliminating the choice eliminates free will. Love without a choice is not love at all. And he wasn't willing to pay that cost. He didn't create evil or suffering. But he makes us a promise. He tells us in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I overcome the world. Although God didn't create evil, He didn't create suffering, it doesn't mean that He's absent. It doesn't mean that He's not there. In His sovereignty, in His deity, He'll intervene at any point He needs to. And He'll do it to orchestrate the result that He wants. Jeremiah 29, 11-13 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He's God. He's Dad. He's got a plan, and the plan is good, and you are safe, even if you can't see him in your circumstances. He doesn't abandon us. Dad didn't make me fall off my bike. He didn't tip me over, at least I don't think he did. But he didn't stop me from falling over either. Because in his mind, the momentary pain was worth the lifetime of reward when we're in the middle of trials when we see when we see shootings on tv or we see a child with cancer or we see a natural disaster that takes out thousands of people it's hard to see that any good can come of it when a good man loses 
his job and he can't make it work. It's hard to see why. (laughs) But in those moments, in those moments, rather than looking at at it the way the rest of the world thinks, when when we, we look at it, we have to do something. We either trust in the goodness of God, we question the goodness of God, or we question or we trust in the, the character of God. You will question his goodness, or you trust in his character. Second Corinthians four seventeen through eighteen says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We can trust the character of God. Even when things don't make sense. Even when things are fractured. Ultimately, three things. Three things. (laughs) Get up here, I forget to count. Ultimately, three things come from trials. There's probably more, but I can only think of three. He's going to use it to correct us. He's going to use it to mature us. And he's going to use it to draw people to himself. When my sin, my sin, the things that I do, causes me the most trouble. When things look the worst, he uses circumstances to bring me back. When, it's in the mo- when I'm in the most trouble and I can get into a lot of trouble, it's in those moments that I, I cry out and I'm the most fervent and I'm the most focused and all I want is to be restored to my dad. Have you ever created a mess that you thought you'll never get out of? You could have all the time in the world and you're never going to get out of it. And you're so broken, you're so busted up that you can only do one thing. You fall to your knees and you go, help, I'm sorry. Please. And in that moment, rather than your sin, you're turning your heart back to him. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking to punish us or beat us up. He's not looking to kick us to the curb or knock us over on our bike. He's not looking for that. He's dad. What he's looking for is for you to be restored. And he's going to orchestrate your circumstances to facilitate that. He doesn't want to punish you. He wants to bless you. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13 says, Then you will call on me, and you will pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's dad. He's got a father's heart. If if your child made a huge mess, dropped glass and all kinds of horrific things all over the floor. You don't toss them a towel and say, now clean that mess up on your own and when you're done, then you can come back to me and we'll talk about whether I'm going to let you stay another day. You don't do that. Well, sometimes you do if you have to teach them a lesson, but no, you don't. But if that's the way I respond to my children, how much more does God respond to us? When I've blown it, when I'm broken, when I've sinned, he doesn't look at me say, and say, clean up that mess. Come back to me when you clean. He says, no. He says, I'm dead. You come to me, we fix it, we move on. Ultimately, he orchestrates all of those things for our good. His desire 
other times God uses suffering to mature us, and that can be really hard. James 1, 3 through 4, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean you've done something wrong, that there's some deep-rooted, ugly sin in your life. Paul didn't live in sin. He, he didn't live in rebellion. He had chosen God. He dedicated himself to God. He walked in humility and in obedience, and yet he suffered like none of us will ever suffer. Why? And he tells us in 2 Corinthians, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But sometimes I take a different perspective than Paul. I pray for healing. I, I demand that this thing that's troubling me go away. But I pray for maturity. I, I pray to know God more, love ourselves less. And then I pray to be where he is. I pray for, for holiness that I might share an intimacy with him. But when he approaches us, when he approaches me with the tools that he's going to use, to transform me, to refine me, to bring me to where he is. The hardships, the challenges, the difficulties. I, I cry out for mercy, begging him to take away the very thing that he's using to sharpen me into what he wants. And then when he persists, when he doesn't answer my prayer, when he doesn't heal me, when he doesn't take care of my finances, when things don't go right, I shake my hand and say, what are you doing? You can't have one without the other. Dad didn't kick me off the bike. God doesn't look for me to be broken. He is looking for me to be back where he wants us to be, that I might have more of him. How do we know the power of God when we're never put into a situation when we can trust nobody but Him? How do we see the power of an omnipotent God if He never orchestrates our situations that He's our only hope? How do we know His incredible care for us if our strength is sufficient? As long as your strength is sufficient, you have no need of God. David said it like this in Psalm 119. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Finally, God uses the trials in the lives of his children to bring men to him, to draw people to himself, to bring them into a saving knowledge of who he is, that, that he might show them a love that they know nowhere else. He uses a believer's trials and tragedy and brokenness to show a world that is fractured, a God that loves them. 
to show them the one thing they can't see anywhere else in creation. When the world looks at the Christian, the person in, 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 they know goes to church in their office and, and they see them prosper. They see them in blessing. They see that things are going well with the world. They go, they look pretty much like me. There's no particular attraction there. But when they look at the Christian that is broken, when they look at the believer that is suffering, when they see the Christian's life in turmoil, when their health is fading, when their prosperity is gone, and in the middle of that trial, they still look up to heaven and say, yet will I praise Him. They see something that is exquisite. They see something that is extraordinary and they are shaken in their unbelief because that is miraculous. To rejoice in something that is ripping your heart out shows the world there is a source of strength that they just don't know. To be able to rejoice in suffering when there's only one source for strength is miraculous. They look at the Christian, they look at the strength, and then they look to a Savior that died for them. Where are you at? Are you struggling? Or are things hard? Are your finances in tatters? Is your health gone? Is your situation really bad? In that moment, you've captured the attention of the world, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And they're going to see how you respond. What do we show them? God doesn't cause suffering. But he uses suffering as a refining fire. He is a loving and holy God that does not let us fall and he does not let us be broken. He does not let our trial be in vain because that would be cruelty. He has proved his goodness in the past. You can guarantee he's going to show his goodness in your present circumstances. And you know he's going to be faithful in the future because he never changes a few years after the training wheels came off my bike my next big step was being able to spend the night at a friend's house I begged dad I begged and begged and begged and begged dad please and finally he said yes so I get my sleeping bag and I get I get my pillow and I go to my friend's house off, off we go and, and we have a great day the best day ever but then it gets to be night. Started to get a little, a little scary. Things were changing and not for the better. Then it was time to go to bed, which was also about the time the wind started to blow and it started to, to rain a little bit. And I was waiting for his mom to come in and pray for us. That's what we need. Mom's going to come in and pray for us and everything's going to be better. So mama comes in. She kisses her son goodnight. She rubs my head and then she leaves. What? Who does that? 
you come in, you're going to put me to bed, you're going to put me to bed, right? And that doesn't mean you leave without praying. But that's what he did. And she did. And so I was going to ask my friend, I said, hey, what's wrong with your mom? But he was already sleeping. So I laid there in that house and it was making weird noises and I smelled different things and I couldn't sleep and I tossed and I turned and it was just miserable. But finally, somehow, I make it to sleep and a couple of hours later, there is an enormous thunderclap. I am wide awake, I'm sitting up and I am terrified again and I just laid there. And I laid there and finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I cried out for help. Help! And his mama came running in. I said, she said, well, what's wrong? I said, I'm going home. She she says, no, you're going to be fine. You're all right. You're good. I said, no, I'm going home. She says, it's two in the morning. I said, I'm going home. And so she calls my dad. And I could hear her on the phone, and she's apologizing. And and she's explaining the story, and I'm going, oh, he's going to be so bad. But I did not care. (laughs) Because I would rather face his wrath in his presence than be without it for another moment. So she leads me to the door and I expect her to get her keys and we're all going to go back to my house and meet my dad. And and then she just stood there with the door open. And I said, aren't you you coming? She said, nope. She said, but your dad's going to be waiting for you. And you're going to be just fine. Just fine. I remember how that worked out. So I stepped out of the house and the wind still blowing and it was still raining, but I was sure that my dad was going to be there for me because he's my, my dad. But it was also in that moment I could look up the street and I realized that I remembered that my friend only lived at the bottom of our hill where I learned to ride my bike. That there were only a couple of houses separating his and mine, and I wasn't as far from home as I thought I was. But it was also in that moment that I lifted my eyes from the ground. And I looked up the street, and I looked into the eyes of my dad. And I knew I was all right. And I started to walk. And then I started to run. And then I jumped into his arms and I was home, baby. Because I found out that night that the night wasn't so dark. And that I wasn't as far from home as I thought I was. And baby, neither are you. I don't know what your trial is today. I, I, I don't know what's keeping you up in the middle of the night and staring at the ceiling in a cold sweat. I don't know. But God does. And that struggle, that trial isn't in vain. I know that you're safe no matter what things look like that our difficulties will show to us a God that loves us enough that He doesn't let us fall no matter how things are. God didn't create suffering. Sin did. Rebellion 
did, but he is going to use it for his purposes. And at just the right moment, when the time is right, he brings that suffering to an end and it is over. He doesn't leave us there. And he transforms the world around us because of it. When the time is perfect, the training wheels come off. The night becomes day and that suffering comes to an end. If you don't know that today, if, if you're unsure of who he is or what he has for you, come and talk to us before you leave. Let us share your burden. If you don't know that hope, come on down. Let us pray for you. He promises us this in Revelation 21.4. That there is coming a time when all sorrow, tears, pain, and death will pass away. There's coming a wonderful day when God will wipe away all the tears from the eyes of His children and our sorrow will end forever. Let's pray.